This is Encounter on VOA. Here's Carol Castiel. Welcome to Encounter on the Voice of America. On this edition of the program, a focus on the civil war and humanitarian crisis in Yemen. Hello again, I'm Carol Castiel. Tunisia has emerged as one of the few success stories from the Arab Spring, the democratic movement which the North African nation sparked after ousting former autocrat Ben Ali in 2011 in a popular uprising. But recently, even Tunisia is suffering political setbacks. Yemenis, like Egyptians and Syrians, valiantly emulated the Tunisians by peacefully rising up to throw off the yoke of political and economic repression. But the results have been calamitous. Yemen's longtime authoritarian leader, Ali Abdullah Saleh, stepped down due to demonstrations against him in 2011. His deputy, Abu Rabo Mansur Hadi, was elected as president for a two-year transition period. Then, around September 2014, Houthis, a predominantly Zaydi Shia Muslim group from northern Yemen who have harbored long-standing grievances against the Yemeni government, launched demonstrations against rising fuel prices. The protests and their ensuing suppression by government security forces led to violent clashes. In late 2014, the Houthis took control of the capital, Sana'a, sending the Hadi government into exile in Saudi Arabia. Then, in March 2015, Saudi Arabia and eight other Sunni Arab states formed a coalition to stop the Houthis, fearing that they were receiving help from Iran. Despite the coalition's efforts over the last six years to dislodge the Houthis and restore the Hadi government, the Houthis still control the capital and much of Yemen. Ceasefires and tentative peace agreements have occurred, but the conflict, which has morphed into a proxy war between the Saudis who support the Hadi government and the Iranians who back the Houthis, continues. Since February 2021, the Houthis have increased their offensive in Marib, the Hadi government's last stronghold in the northern region of Yemen. UNICEF has classified Yemen as the largest humanitarian crisis in the world. The agency reported in December 2020 that more than 200,000 people have died in the conflict, including tens of thousands of civilians and over 3,000 children. According to Reuters, senior U.S. diplomats held talks in the Gulf region in a renewed attempt to reach a ceasefire in Yemen, for more on the conflict in Yemen and its regional and international implications are two Washington-based regional experts. Catherine Zimmerman is a fellow for foreign and defense policy studies at the American Enterprise Institute, as well as an advisor to AEI's Critical Threats Project, and Elena DeLozier. She is the Rubin Family Fellow in the Bernstein Program on Gulf and Energy Policy at the Washington Institute for Near East Policy. She is an expert on Yemen and the Gulf states, both ladies join me via Microsoft Teams, Catherine and Elena. Welcome to the program. Thank you, Carol. Well, Catherine, I would like you to start off. Who are the important actors and forces right now in the Yemeni crisis? How would you characterize the balance of power at this moment? The most important actors in the crisis are certainly the members of the al Houthi movement who effectively are on the upswing and are consolidating power in northern Yemen. And then, of course, we have the opposing forces that are unified in name only against them. They are under the internationally recognized Yemeni government led by President Hadi. 
um, but they include a mixture of Yemeni forces from Southerners who are looking to achieve their own ends, to the nephew of the late president, to forces that have been trained by the UAE, as well as tribal forces in northeastern Yemen, in Marib, that are backed by Saudi Arabia. Internationally, of course, we do have the Saudi-led coalition still involved, though Saudi Arabia is bringing the majority of the forces and energy to bear in this conflict, including air power that's very much needed by tribal forces in northern Yemen. And then the United States still plays a role, as well as some other international actors. And on the negotiating end, the UN has a special envoy, or will be shortly renaming a fourth special envoy for this conflict to try to negotiate a settlement. And then, you know, finally, in the background of this civil war is the ongoing presence of al-Qaeda in Yemen, which has had seen its fortunes rise and fall uh, and may again be on the upswing as attention turns elsewhere. I'd like to turn now to Elena Delosier. Elena, I'd like you to pick up where Catherine left off regarding the situation. Why is it taking so long, more than six years, that we are seeing this horrific conflict with the terrible humanitarian consequences? It's a great question. And I think it's a question of political will on the part of the domestic parties. So Catherine did a great job of explaining all the different cast of characters. There's so many different actors involved at this stage. But the two main actors, the Houthis and the Hadi government, are really the ones that need to have the political will to end the war. And at various points, the political will of both parties has shifted over time, both up and down but it's never been up at the same time. You need both parties to agree at the same time to end the war. And as we stand now, the Houthis are in the upswing, as Catherine said, in a particular province called Marib, and they're not succeeding. So it's uh, stalemated a bit, but they have made a series of pushes that have been very nerve wracking for the Yemeni government. So on the one hand, if the Houthis perceive themselves to be winning or to have the upper hand, because they know that the Saudi want to get out of the war. And so they don't really have the political will to end the war at the moment because they see themselves as quote-unquote winning. And on the other side, the Hadi government certainly wouldn't want to go to the table and negotiate with the Houthis when they feel as though they're on the back foot. The domestic political will isn't there for an agreement, but the external parties would love to have the war end. I mean, all of us would love to see this war end. And so you've got this external political will, but it's really that domestic political will that you need to get to. So back to you, Catherine Zimmerman, to talk about a U.N.-led proposal for a nationwide truce and a lifting of a coalition blockade. And of course, many experts say unless we reach a truce or ceasefire, we cannot address this horrific humanitarian disaster or even obviously find a way to end the conflict. How do you see this proposal? Is there one side more than another to blame for an impasse over this? The UN proposal for a ceasefire and to set conditions for mediation for some sort of resolution, as Elena referenced, is problematic because what we've seen in the history of the Yemeni civil war, as we've watched inside of Syria as well, is the use of ceasefires by both sides to reset and recalibrate in order to resume fighting. So when it's imposed upon both sides, the ceasefires don't actually facilitate negotiations. As Elena mentioned, the Houthis are winning in their mind and the Yemeni government forces are losing. Neither wants to actually give up without a shift in the ground. And so those power dynamics are very important. Uh, One actor that I neglected
neglected to mention is, of course, Iran, which is lurking in the background, supporting the Al-Houthi movement. This comes into play with the blockade. Uh, the Saudi-led coalition has put a loose naval and air blockade on Yemen to stop some of the transfer of materials and expertise that Iran has shipped to the Al-Houthis. And it's quite significant in terms of what it's done for the Al-Houthi threat, giving the Al-Houthis a ballistic missile capability that can threaten as far as Israel. Almost at this point, the UAV or drone threat from the Al-Houthis, which has certainly caused significant damage inside of the kingdom. And of course, all of the training and assistance that Iran has been able to smuggle in in various means. The concern that the Saudis and the Yemeni government have is that by lifting the blockade, it will provide the Al-Houthis with the relief that they need, not just economically and with the flow of commercial goods, but with reopening some of the smuggling routes to enable the Al-Houthis to actually strengthen and fight further. On the humanitarian side, the numbers are simply appalling. They were bad when the war started. They've gotten worse over the past couple of years, and we're looking at a country that is literally in crisis. And I would actively push for separating a humanitarian ceasefire from a mediation ceasefire. So if we're looking to bring relief to the conflict, certainly opening up the ports and airways will enable goods to come in. I will tell you that there is no amount of humanitarian assistance at this point, emergency assistance that will resolve the issues on the ground. It all comes wrapped up in resolving this crisis. So any humanitarian relief is simply a band-aid on a very bad problem at this point. Well, those are excellent points, Catherine. Let me turn to Elena Delosier for your take, Elena, especially on this blockade. The Houthis have insisted that sea and air restrictions on areas they control be removed before any ceasefire talks, while the coalition asserts that it wants a simultaneous deal. Yes, that's right. So the Houthis' position on this is that they see the blockade, both sea and air, as a humanitarian issue, or they're framing it as a humanitarian issue. And so they're saying those humanitarian issues should be resolved before we have a conversation about a ceasefire. Whereas the Saudi point of view is that that could be some sort of potential trade. And so it's a framing by the Houthis in order to separate the opening of the port and the airport from any sort of political or security discussions. And this is where in Yemen it's always been tricky is that the parties always frame the issues differently from each other. Oftentimes the issue is not what we need to agree on, but in what order we need to agree on those things. And that's always been really tricky in Yemen. I do want to just make a comment about the blockade and to emphasize some of the things that Catherine said. The humanitarian crisis in Yemen, which is massive, just as she noted, there's two primary reasons why it's particularly bad now and the blockade doesn't help. But the issue in Yemen is not that there's food missing from the grocery shelves. There is food on the grocery shelves in Yemen. It's just that people can't buy the food. And so the bigger issue is actually the economic collapse and the lack of payment of salaries. And that's the reason that there's such a massive humanitarian crisis there. It's less because of airstrikes or bombs falling and more because of the economic collapse of the country. And to Catherine's point, no amount of aid can patch up those kinds of things, but there used to be more aid in Yemen, and there's been a bit of a Yemen fatigue, which has led to 
lower amounts of aid being given to the country. And so when the UN used to feed, say, 13 million people, now today they're doing less than half that. And it's just because they don't have the funding for that. You're listening to Encounter on The Voice of America. I'm Carol Castiel. My guests are Catherine Zimmerman. She's a fellow for foreign and defense policy studies at the American Enterprise Institute. And Elena Delosier, from whom you just heard, fellow in the Bernstein Program on Gulf and Energy Policy at the Washington Institute for Near East Policy. And we're discussing the civil war and resulting humanitarian crisis in Yemen and what can be done to break the stalemate. Well, back to you, uh, Catherine Zimmerman. Elena Delosier made a very good point about the economic collapse in Yemen and that that is one of the primary reasons why there is such a humanitarian crisis. But I wanted to go back to the Hadi Houthi rivalry here. Certainly, they're tied up with their so-called proxy backers. Let's look at the Houthis. What do they really want in Yemen and why can't they seem to achieve it? What are the obstacles? Do they have legitimate reasons for continuing this fight? What the Houthi really want is the question of the day, and I would say it's been the question of this war. When they first started their approach on Sana'a, the capital, in 2014, it really triggered alarms because many people had perceived them, myself included, as having very legitimate grievances against the Yemeni state that were not addressed in the transition coming out of the Arab Spring protests. They were economically and politically marginalized. Their homeland in Yemen had been absolutely decimated by years of war, and there was no money, and frankly, there still is no money for reconstruction. But as time has moved on, the allegations that the Houthis want something a little bigger and grander continue to ring a little bit more true, where the leader really does perceive himself to be at the helm of an ideological movement that is transforming both the Yemeni state and society. We're seeing increasing enforcement of very conservative religious traditions in Yemen that were not widespread before the war, where the roles of men and women are becoming more defined. The education system is becoming more religious and leaning towards Zaidi Islam. And the practice of various holidays are coming into play under areas in Houthi control. This rings alarm bells for those watching what the Houthis are doing because it is fundamentally changing the fabric of Yemeni society and how the system had organized. You know, in terms of why they haven't been able to achieve what they're looking for, you know, the question is actually where they will stop. They are looking to be recognized as the Yemeni state. They perceive themselves to be the true government of Yemen due to what happened in January and February of 2015 before outright fighting broke out inside of the country. And they have some state recognition, Iran and Syria being the only states that actually do recognize the Houthi government as the government of Yemen. But they're they're looking to be a major player long term. And of course, the challenge is the opposing forces want to see them put back in the box. They want to see the Houthis given a representation that is proportional to their actual size and the support that they have in Yemen, which is nowhere near the power that they currently yield today. Turning to you, Elena Delosier, to pick up on what Catherine was saying, which is fascinating how the Houthi have moved the goalposts, that there's more of an ideological component now. I wondered what you thought about that. And do you also agree that their support within Yemen is nowhere near the support that they think they have or would like to have? And what about the role of Iran? Is Iran playing a role in pushing the ideological side? 
This is a great set of questions, and I agree with everything Catherine just explained. So on the Houthi side, if you were the Houthis, if you think about it, you were fighting the Yemeni government in 2004. And as Catherine explained, you know, you went through a very tough couple of years for that. And then the Arab Spring happens, and you would see yourself as having helped overthrow, you know, the authoritarian leader of Yemen, that kind of thing. And then a few years later, you're taking the capital, and the Houthis were actually able to walk into Sana'a pretty easily in 2014 for a series of political reasons. And then the war's gone on and they've managed to stay the course for how many years, even against, you know, a regional power like Saudi Arabia and against the world power, the United States. And I think it's worth mentioning that many Houthis think the United States is, quote unquote, behind this war and that the Saudis are merely puppets of a U.S., you know, objective. And so in many of their minds, they're defeating the United States and that kind of thing. And so that sort of mentality, if you take that to its sort of natural conclusion, it's this sort of God is on our side. The longer we stick this out, the more we're succeeding sort of mentality. That's not exactly a mentality that takes you to a negotiation table or makes you decide to give any sort of concessions. And I think that that is also a mentality that says we're going to be around for a while. So let's start doing things with the educational system. Let's start doing things in some other spaces. And I think that is a concern of many Yemenis who are very fearful of the Houthis, quote unquote, taking over their country. Those kinds of activities where they're really sort of sinking their teeth in is very concerning. On the Iran question, Iran supports the Houthis in a number of ways. I always say that Iran is more of a booster for the Houthis than they are the source of their power. So if Iran disappeared tomorrow, the Houthis would still be quite powerful in Yemen. And in fact, I would argue the Houthis took the capital Sana'a with more of the help of the former president of Yemen than the help of Iran. But what Iran does do for the Houthis is give them the ability, as Catherine mentioned earlier, to send missiles and drone technology towards Saudi Arabia and threaten the Saudi homeland and also potentially threaten further afield places. And so that's the kind of capabilities that the Houthis would not have without Iran. And Iran also has helped them on how to run media outlets, how to run a security state. And it's been very much a training program. Let us teach you how to do this. And so that adds this extra dimension to the conflict that we all have to look at quite closely. It underscores the proxy dimension, the role of Iran, the role of Saudi Arabia, other external actors. Speaking of which, back to you, Catherine Zimmerman. I remember speaking with you at these microphones after 9-11 about the threat from al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, which was dug in in Yemen, and you referred to that earlier. How much of a threat do they pose? Do they side with the Hadi government or Houthi? Where does that threat stand? Al-Qaeda in Yemen sides with neither of the forces, but has chosen not to attack the Yemeni government forces, seeing the al-Houthis as the greater of the two enemies inside of the country today. And in terms of its threat, it is still actively pursuing the ability to conduct transnational terror attacks. That has not been erased. The intent is there. And if we recall, it was one of the most capable al-Qaeda affiliates that has been reduced, but not eliminated. The real question in terms of the Yemeni conflict is its strength on the ground. And this is where the Emirati-led counterterrorism operations that helped to congeal 
counterterrorism ground operation against al-Qaeda from 2016 until about 2018-2019 really pushed al-Qaeda back on its feet and caused a lot of consternation within al-Qaeda because the top and mid-level commanders were frankly degraded and almost eliminated so that we now have a much weaker organization. The concern as a perennial concern in these types of situations is that there are key leaders that still survive, that are still organizing, and the conditions remain for al-Qaeda to continue to recruit and grow. So as long as the conflict persists in Yemen, there is the risk that al-Qaeda starts to restore its strength on the ground, which coupled with that external attack capability will bring it back to the fore as a major threat. As we close, just a quick follow-up. How do you see the Biden administration's approach differing, if it does, from the Trump administration? With respect to the Biden administration, we do know that they did reverse the classification that the Trump administration gave to the Houthis as a terrorist organization. They reversed that, saying that is not very constructive. So what can the United States do? Do they have a certain amount of clout in the area vis-a-vis the Saudis? And what about Iran, especially as the United States is trying to get back into the Iran nuclear deal? Does that complicate things regarding policy toward Yemen? You've hit the nail on the head here, Carol. And that's the fact that Iran is lurking in the background of the Yemen conflict. The U.S. has historically treated Yemen as separate from the Iran question. The Biden administration is continuing to do that, where we're seeing the engagements from Tim Lenderking and Wendy Sherman as really focused on the conflict inside of Yemen and trying to get the actors to negotiate some sort of settlement. But with the ongoing Iran nuclear negotiations, that will inevitably complicate whatever comes in Yemen. And to Elena's point, earlier. The real challenge with U.S. policy and the means by which we're trying to pursue it is that the U.S. has very little leverage over the actors on the ground. The most leverage that the U.S. wields is over Saudi Arabia and Gulf partners, and Saudi Arabia is actively seeking some sort of resolution to this conflict. The U.S. cannot bring the Houthis to the table. The U.S. cannot actually bring the rest of the Yemeni actors to the table. And the tools that the United States has have been greatly reduced. And I was somebody who did not support the way that the Trump administration went around designating the Houthis as a foreign terrorist organization. But the rapid reversal of that really took one of the key policy tools that we had off of the table and we can't use it again. So I see it and I think the Houthis perceive it as the U.S. is in a very weak position to exert influence in resolving this conflict. Elena Delosier, you get to close out the program. Do you share Catherine Zimmerman's rather pessimistic view of U.S. leverage in the region, especially the Biden administration having reversed policy regarding classifying the Houthis as a terrorist organization? So on the FTO issue, it's a complicated issue because the Trump administration implemented that basically the day before they left office and they did it because they knew it would put the Biden administration in quite a pickle. The reason that the FTO was so opposed by many Yemen experts is because the Houthis control the banking sector in Yemen. It would shut off the banking sector from global trade. And the concern was that the food would stop 
not being on grocery shelves in Yemen. And so there were fears of famine and all kinds of things that had nothing to do with whether people thought the Houthis were or were not terrorists. And it put the Biden administration in a very tricky position where they either had to use the FTO designation as leverage, but then that took time, potentially allow famine to set in or reverse it and then embolden the Houthis, which is what happened. So there were just no good choices. But I think that the U.S. has very little leverage over the domestic parties, particularly the Houthis. But the Biden administration has appointed a special envoy and we have a new opportunity with the new U.N. envoy coming in to reset and to maybe think about a way that we can move forward towards a peaceful resolution of this war in a different way. And I do think that the United States has some leverage over some of the parties in Yemen, some of the other regional actors involved, whether it's the Saudis or the UAE or the Omanis, also have some leverage. And meanwhile, I think there needs to be a more concerted effort to build governance institutions in Yemen even before the war is over to provide the stability of the economy that is desperately needed. We've got to focus on what's actually happening today and not just sort of the end result. That's all the time we have on this edition of Encounter. I'd like to thank my guests, Catherine Zimmerman, Fellow for Foreign and Defense Policy Studies at the American Enterprise Institute, and Elena Delosier, Fellow in the Bernstein Program on Gulf and Energy Policy at the Washington Institute for Near East Policy. Encounter was produced in Washington with technical assistance from Rick Pantaleo. Thanks to Sydney Sherry for booking our guests. I'm Carol Castiel. Join me again next week for another Encounter on the Voice of America.